Entertainment Podcast from Bottomline Technologies. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Payments Podcast. My name is Marcus Hughes. I am Head of Strategic Business Development at Bottomline and your host for today's conversation. I'm delighted to be joined by a special guest from the Bank of England. I'm very pleased to welcome Christina Siegel-Knowles, who is Executive Director for Financial Markets Infrastructure at the Bank of England. Welcome, Christina, and thank you for speaking with us today. Thanks, Marcus. I'm really glad to be with you. And before we get into our questions, uh, I'll just set the scene. Um, The way businesses and banks pay and get paid is changing rapidly. In, In fact, it's no understatement to suggest that the payments industry is going through a period of unprecedented change. And there are a range of dynamic factors which are driving this fast-moving situation. For example, we've got new regulations which uh, encourage greater innovation and competition. There are new entrants in the the market, such as challenger banks and non-bank fintechs. And we've got new compliance rules for anti-money laundering and fraud and financial crime prevention. We've also got a wide range of new payment schemes, new payment instruments and formats like open banking, request to pay, ISO 20022, and and the rollout of real-time payment systems around the world. Uh, And of course, where would would we be without technology? In particular, the adoption of cloud and the increasing use of APIs or application program interfaces in the financial services sector. With so much change, there's never been a greater need for trusted advisors who can make it easier and faster for banks and corporates to comply with these new requirements while still getting maximum benefit from the exciting opportunities that are presented by these changes. Uh, I'd now like to turn to Christina with, with a question. Given the uh, extraordinary times we're going through during COVID-19, what impact do you think the pandemic is having on the world of payments? I think I'd start to answer that question by um, putting a bit into context where payments were going into the pandemic. I think the world of payments, as as you know, and as you alluded to in your question, has been changing quite rapidly in recent years. And we've seen a, a very significant increase in particular in the rise of, of payments using um, credit card uh both in retail, in person, um, and and online over the last several years. From 2017 to 2019, the number of people in the UK using cash less than once a month um, in the UK doubled to 7.4 million people. We've seen um, declining use of cash across um, a number of indicators, and at the same time, just a an increased dependence on um, use of cards. And I think people will understand that. They see that in their everyday lives. The um, number of places that you can walk into a shop and tap your card rather than than providing cash has increased quite tangibly. And I think it's uh, impacting many of us in the way that we personally um, choose to pay for, for retail transactions. So that was what was happening even before the pandemic. And then you had the impact of the pandemic itself, which is something that, that um, 
I think also is relatively intuitive. You have a combination of in most countries, including in the UK, you had temporary closure of shops and restaurants, which meant that people were turning increasingly to online shopping. So you had an even further bump up um, in an already growing way that people were paying for their retail transactions. In, in April of 2020, online transactions increased to 30% of total retail tra transactions um, from just over 18% a year earlier. And then you also have the social uh, norms and, and shops' preferences and people's preferences around use of cash changing as a result of perceptions around the virus um, so that you have shops encouraging people to use contactless over cash and other forms of payments. Um, and I think all that has come together to see um, just a further acceleration, at least a temporary acceleration of the trend towards real reliance on electronic payments um, and a decline in the use of cash. I'm, I don't have any predictions of how permanent that will be, how it changes behavior over time, but I think it's very clear that over the last decade or so, the way that people have changed is dramatically. I think that regardless of the pandemic, um, the way that people change pay for things um, is likely to continue to evolve um, in the years ahead. And so so innovation is probably something that we'll, we'll continue to see um, in future years. Thank you, Christina. Uh, really interesting, of course. Um, but perhaps I can just add a, a few comments on the impact of COVID-19 from the perspective of business payments. I think we'd all agree that the primary impact of COVID-19 on, on, on payments is that it's accelerating digitization. So real-time information, digital payments, the API-driven uh, exchange of data, and electronic documents such as e-invoicing are all being adopted at a faster pace than ever before. The, the increasing acceptance that working from home is becoming the new norm is definitely bringing radical changes to the working lives of you know, financial decision makers and their teams. Uh, and we're all affected by this change, whether we work in banks, fintechs, corporate treasury, or accounts payable and accounts receivable departments. Technology is, is a key enabler to making this new way of working easier and more secure. This changing world fits perfectly with the growing importance of mobile and easy access to cloud-based technology. But given the, the, the new home environment in which most of us now find ourselves, signing paper checks or physically circulating paper invoices around the office so they can get approved, that's simply no longer practical uh, nor desirable. So the, the adoption of electronic payments and data exchange for e-invoices is now more compelling than ever, especially for personal safety and hygiene reasons. And, and that's in addition to the well-established benefits of lower costs, faster processing, and, and reduced fraud. So I think that digital signatures, multifactor authentication, biometrics, uh, configurable workflow for, for the preparation and distribution and, and approval of payments and electronic documents like e-invoices is all going to become more important and, and ubiquitous. During the pandemic, I think any Treasury's number one focus has been maintaining liquidity in order to meet uh, businesses' ongoing financial obligations as they fall due. That means important activities like servicing debt, managing investments, settling expenses, of course, and paying employees and suppliers. Um, the well-known expression, cash is king, is proving more important during COVID-19 than at any other time, probably in the last 30 years, even during the global financial crisis of 2008 to 9. So um, visibility of cash balances, 
liquidity management, and effective cash flow forecasting across multiple bank accounts, that they're now all more essential than uh, it, to make any um, business efficient. Now, now let's turn to discuss some, some of the unintended consequences of the increased competition and the emergence of new entrants in the payments landscape. It's evident that each of these providers is typically playing an increasingly atomized role, often resulting in a large number of participants in the payment chain, and that's each of them providing specialist service to, to each other. Uh, many of us do, of course, strongly support new regulations like open banking and PSD2, which were introduced to drive innovation and, and increased competition. But I do observe that a growing number of regulators, like the Bank of England, are increasingly concerned that some of the unintended consequences of these of these new regulations um, mean that a number of the, the organizations which are gaining importance in the payments chain are not as highly supervised as, say, commercial banks and traditional clearing and settlement mechanisms. Having worked in a in a bank myself, in banking for, for, for many years, I, I'm very much aware that banks are heavily regulated and for good reason, of course. And, and that's why they have to support quite demanding capital and liquidity, liquidity ratios and, and other regulatory risk management requirements. On the other hand, some of the non-bank fintechs, such as payment institutions and uh, processors, they enjoy a much lighter regulatory and capital uh, requirements. Um, Yet in some cases, these entities play a key role in payment chains, and they're, they're supporting mission-critical processes and functions, often with large volumes of transactions and involving many other financial institutions. Uh, and of course, any weak link in the chain can disrupt that, that whole payment process and, and many other participants. So, so, Christina, I'd like to ask you whether there is a case for leveling up or modifying the regulatory landscape. Or, or do fintechs and smaller digital banks still struggling to achieve profitability actually deserve a lighter touch approach than the larger incumbent banks and clearing and settlement mechanisms? I expect there's a there's a quite a hard balancing act somewhere within that conundrum. Thanks, Marcus. I mean, I think taking a, a step back, I think it's important to uh, in thinking about that balance. I think I think it's important to actually. Be, Think about the the role that innovation can play in supporting the bank's objectives in financial stability, and I think that helps to. And then also thinking about what is the purpose of of the regulation that we we currently do provide in the payment space and also across the financial system. And I think that helps you get to to an answer that actually maybe isn't so much attention. I don't I don't think and don't accept that there's necessarily a the tension between having the right regulation and supporting innovation. I think they actually can be very consistent with each other. And I think it's really that's important because the bank supports innovation, including in the payment space, but right across the financial system. That's not just because it's good for consumers. It it, it can be. Um, it's not good just the case because it can support economic tech activity. That's also a positive benefit. But I think it also can, if done properly, be a positive for our financial stability mandate. Um, and that's because new alternatives and new ways to pay can be give people less dependence and less reliance on a single um, source and a single um, way to pay, which then could cause a financial stability problem if that single uh, um, way to pay had an issue. Um, and it can have other sort of knock-on benefits for other parts of the financial 
um, system as well when you have more diversity um, in in what's offered to consumers in the way that they are making payments. And I think that's something that the bank very much supports. The bank also has been looking to support this, not just through its regulation, but also through the um, central infrastructure that the bank provides directly, um, where we're undergoing a, a very significant project of RTGS renewal um, to support greater access. So um, to support the uh, innovative new firms, as well as make sure that um, our central processing um, architecture is is um, at a standard that that supports innovation. But then turning to your question on renov- of, on um, regulation, to me, I think an important part of supporting innovation is ensuring, first of all, that regulation is clear up front. You want firms to be able to develop knowing what the rules of the road are going to be. And you want to make sure that you're getting that regulation right so that you don't end up with a situation where something comes along, it's a promising innovation, it doesn't have the right regulatory structure and leads to a problem, whether it's that's a financial stability problem, a problem for consumers, which can really set innovation back. So you want to have innovation that provides sort of the rules of the road, gives clear guidance to firms that allows them to develop based on certainty about how they'll be regulated in future. That doesn't mean sort of a a, um, one-size-fits-all solution, but it does mean that you have innovation in place that gives people confidence. And I think that's particularly important when it comes to payments. Um, People need to be able to know that when they make a payment, it's going to get to the intended recipient securely and on time. You don't want to have a situation where people think, well, if I use this form of payment or that form of payment, it creates new risks for whether that payment is actually going to get made. You don't want people to be, um, you don't want uh, uh, merchants to have to evaluate the various cards that people could tap, the various apps that people could use on their phone and scrutinize them in terms of, is this really safe to accept that payment? You want people to be able to use the main ways of of payment available to them interchangeably and with confidence. And so that doesn't lead you necessarily to regulate all firms to the same degree. I think throughout um, financial system regulation and, and Um, consistent with what we do with firms already, whether that's in the payment space or the banking space, the risk going back to that sort of purpose of the regulation, the purpose is to address the risks that the firm and the activity that the firm is doing poses to the wider financial system. Um, And and that doesn't necessarily lead you to think that every firm should be regulated in the exact same way based on what activity it's doing. Firms that are more systemic, that are that people are dependent on and that where there are not alternatives and that are involved in certain types of activities are going to pose a different risk than other firms that might have ready alternatives available. And I think that can lead you to a way of structuring your regulation that really is based in a principle which we call same risk, same regulation, in which you look not at the type of firm it is, not at its legal form, what technology it's using, does it tick the box in this way or that way, but going back to your example and your question, you talked about the importance of these new payments chains, these new firms that are in a payments chain that could pose a risk to the entire chain. And I think same risk, same regulation principle gives you a vantage where you can take a step back and say, well, is that chain essential to financial stability? Um, 
is it essential? Do you, does the financial system's functioning depend on that payments chain? That could be people's ability to pay in a shop. It could be people's ability to receive their salary. How important is it that that payment be made in a timely way? And then think, look at the individual firms in that chain and think about, well, which ones are critical to that chain's functioning? Which ones are easily substitutable? Not every firm in the chain would take out the entire chain or disrupt the payment if they had a disruption. And then you can apply a regulation based on that um, principle and get firms into the right level of regulation. I think it's very important that we think about it in that way rather than get pigeonholed into sort of, it depends on whether you check the box of being this type of firm and payments or that type of firm. Um, and that will create an opportunity to really future-proof our regulation and also just provide much more clarity for firms and a level playing field so you don't end up with firms for relatively arbitrary reasons that are posing the same risk regulated in different ways, which won't provide a sort of good basis for competition, a good basis for uh, innovation going forward. Christina, thank you for that really helpful viewpoint. Um, same risk, same regulation. That makes a lot of good sense to me. Um, so, so moving on to another hot topic, let, let's talk about blockchain and cryptocurrencies, as well as the, the new kids on the block, that stablecoin and, and central bank digital currencies. So as we know, over the last eight to 10 years, there's been a, a lot of excitement, dare I even say hype, about blockchain and crypto assets. But, but this phenomenon and its kind of underlying distributed ledger technology hasn't yet really delivered on their potential. Uh, I admit there are perhaps a few exceptions, such as areas like trade and supply chain finance, where distributed ledger technology is, is being used to make it easier to track the provenance and the movement of merchandise and to exchange data that's relating to ownership and trade finance documents, for example. This, this complex process involves many participants like exporters, importers, banks and, and insurance providers and, and even transport companies. And their interaction with each other has historically been highly paper intensive. But it's very important to note that these uh, new DLT-based trade finance platforms with, you know, with names like Marco Polo, Contour and WeTrade, that they're not using cryptocurrencies to pay for goods or to provide finance. Instead, they're actually settling these transactions in traditional fiat currencies like US dollars and euros. When it comes to cryptocurrencies themselves, so far they haven't really lived up to the initial high expectations that they'd become an instant global payment instrument. Um, Cryptocurrencies have understandably faced some resistance and, and regulatory concerns about anonymity and fears that they might be used for money laundering, terrorism, you know, and financial crime. So other practical barriers to more widespread adoption of cryptocurrencies are things like scalability challenges. That's typically due to um, crypto validation requirements, uh, known typically as um, proof of work or mining, which can be quite slow and costly. Um, especially when higher volumes of transactions are being processed. So, so meanwhile, the, vo the volatility of cryptocurrencies has meant that it's way more popular as a, um, as a speculative investment instrument, uh, effectively an unpredictable commodity, uh, which goes up and down in value, uh, and not as a payment instrument. But, but recently, we're, we're now seeing the emergence of a new form of cryptocurrency known as stablecoin. Um, these new digital coins have, have potential to overcome those volatility issues of cryptocurrencies because they're pegged one-to-one -one, typically against fiat currencies such as the US dollar. So, so Christina, I, I see 
the Bank of England ha has been looking closely at stablecoin, and there, and there appear to be some concerns at the bank and other regulators to ensure that these new digital coin are properly supervised in a way that's consistent with with mainstream payment systems. Could you please explain um, this thinking? And could you also comment on the, the work by the Bank of England in exploring the, the possible issuance of a central bank digital currency here in the UK? So thanks, Marcus. You did a really nice job in your introduction, actually setting out the key sort of crux of the issue and why the, the Bank of England might be interested interested in in stable coins and might be concerned around around their future regulation and I, and I think this is true for central banks and and other regulators here globally and and the real issue here is is as you said so far we've seen cryptocurrencies not be taken up for significant use in payments and that's really because people want to pay in a a form that is going to be that has a value that's stable and predictable you've seen this throughout history when and ways that people could pay are are volatile when there's not assuredness around that value they don't ultimately they tend to be unsuccessful either unsuccessful in their take up initially or people move away from them to and to have something that is going to provide that level of confidence stablecoin aim is is aiming to address that in the crypto asset space and so given that their aim is to provide a stable value um, that could be more useful in um, in payments and potentially become widespread in use of payments. They, going back to that principle that I was talking about in my earlier answer of same risk, same regulation, could start to pay, um, pose the same risk to the economy as as existing payment systems that are regulated. Because if you are able to use a stablecoin to pay for goods and services, to make your online purchases, if people start using them in the same way that they're using existing payment systems, then logic suggests that if a stablecoin were to fail, then it would pose the same risk to the economy than as if a traditional payment system were to fail. And, and failure could come in different forms. It could be an operational or financial failure of the firm. It could be a it could also be that the stable coin goes from being something that's very stable and people are willing to pay in to something that is very volatile and, and not really fit for purpose in use in payments. So I think taking a step back and thinking about how to, again, we get into a world where we feel confident that our regulatory system delivers that principle of same risk, same regulation. We need to be thinking about stable coins that would that are used widely in payments in the same way that we're thinking about existing payment systems. I think once you start thinking about it in that way, there's a second piece to the, the sort of puzzle of regulating stablecoins, which is stablecoins are actually doing something that's in addition to what existing payments systems do. Existing payments firms traditionally are not issuing the money that is flowing through their chains. They are transferring either central bank money, so in the form of central bank reserves, or they're transferring effectively deposits in people's bank accounts, which um, is can also be called commercial bank money. So they're transferring um, money that is created by someone else, and there's regulation and and protections in place to make sure both that the payment system and that's doing the transferring is safe and secure, but also the money flowing through that system and the ultimate settlement asset is going to be reliable and fit for purpose. And so 
when you put those two things together, that leads you to two things that you're going to need to do if you're going to get to the point where stablecoin systems are have that same risk, same regulation principle met and the regulatory system delivers that, which is why at the Bank of England, the Financial Policy Committee, which is our committee that um, that is in charge of looking at financial stability risks across the financial system, has set out some two key principles that they want to see in the future regulation of stablecoin systems. The first is is basically just a long-winded way of of restating that same risk, same regulation principle, which is that payments chains that are using stablecoins should be regulated to the standards equivalent to those applied to traditional payments chains. So same risk, same regulation. Firms that are in stablecoin-based payments chains that are critical to their functioning, those firms that I was talking about earlier that could just take out the entire chain, disrupt the way to pay, should be regulated accordingly. So it's pretty common sense, but but it's providing a framework that then can on the um, on which we can base a future regulatory system that brings them in and makes sure that we end up with a level playing field between pay, stable coins and other forms of payment systems. Then the second one is thinking about that that issue of the money flowing through it and the fact that stablecoins are doing this thing that is additional to most payment systems, and there. Again, this is this is pretty logical based on we don't want to introduce new risk. We don't want to make payments less secure in the United Kingdom. So we've said where stablecoins are used in systemic payments chains as money-like instruments, so where they're used in chains that are really widely used, that they're really important to the, to the functioning of the financial system and the economy, they need to meet standards equivalent to those expected of commercial bank money, that the money that we're using traditionally in existing payments chains, the money that gets transferred when you tap your, um, your card um, for a card transaction, um, the money that gets transferred in most bank-to-bank transactions. And it needs to meet those standards of, for commercial bank money in relation to the stability of its value, the robustness of the legal claim provided to the person holding that stablecoin and the ability to redeem at par and fiat. In other words, you know, one of the things that gives us confidence in our bank deposits and our willingness to, to take payment in card or bank transfer in the same way that we would accept cash is that we know that we can show up at our bank and exchange our bank, withdraw that bank deposit and otherwise exchange the, the banking deposit for, for cash and at any point and we need to make sure that that when you're introducing new ways to pay, that you have that ability to to convert it into um, into cash. That that will give you the confidence that it can be used interchangeably with other ways to pay. I think the second part of your question was about CBDC, which of course is is a different new form of um, of electronic way to pay, which would be a basically an ability to to transfer and have an electronic form of central bank money. So this could be used by households and businesses to make payments. It could be used interchangeably with cash and it different from a stablecoin rather than a private issuer, it would be issued by the Bank of England or other central banks. We're looking at this because CBDC could bring a number of benefits. Um, it could um, provide additional access to central bank money as we've seen that decline in cash. People may want to have an electronic form ability to, to hold on to money issued by the central bank. Um, it could also, like other forms of innovation, support resilience it could pro- and competition in payments because, as I talked about at the beginning, it's good to have multiple alternatives. That, that's good for resilience overall. 
But it also, we're, we need to think a little bit more about and make sure that we're able to understand implication, broader implications for the financial, for the financial system, um, which could include changes and challenges around monetary um, stability, financial stability. So we're still in the, the mode of consultation and thinking about this. Um, we think that there could be some real benefits, but, but we're still in the, in the, um, we're still in the consultative phases. Um, we consulted in, in March 2020 on views on introducing a CBDC, and we are planning on issuing a further discussion paper um, in, in coming months that will develop those points for, further, um, including in the context of how does that fit in with the stable coins, the privately issued new digital currencies that I was just speaking about, about and how those two might operate alongside each other. Um, so, so I think I think overall this is an important area to think about. Again, when we're we're thinking about how do you support innovation, how do you support reliability of payments, um, and and how do we make sure that we, as the Bank of England, are, are ready for for the future of payments um, as that innovation continues. Christina, thank you for that that really fascinating insight on on stablecoin and of course uh, central bank digital currencies a, a, a great topic there. Um, I, I saw the Bank of England's latest financial stability report was published just a few days ago. Are there any other big topics uh, the report covers that you'd like to highlight? So yeah, so we we published our financial stability report just a few days ago, and and there was an entire chapter um, on. On stable coins um, that that goes over many of the points that I just highlighted. I think beyond that, I think there were a number of, of things that may be of interest to readers, um, particularly in thinking about the readiness of the financial system in the context of of the strains around coronavirus, in the context of ready preparedness for the UK's exit from the European Union. Um, that may be of of particular interest to to readers. Thank you, Christina. Looking at our agenda so far, we've we've discussed a, a range of uh, exciting topics about the fast-changing um, landscape uh, in payments. Um, as we've got several other big questions to cover while we're together, I suggest we maybe take a break here and then we'll come back with a, a second podcast in which we'll cover some more hot topics like modernizing the UK and international payment systems, the impact of Brexit, of course, and, and even our predictions for 2021 and beyond. Um, in, in the meantime, a, a big thank you to Christina for sharing her views with us today. And so on that note, um, it's goodbye for, from me, Marcus Hughes. Uh, to our listeners, I'd say simply uh, look out for the second part of this keynote conversation with Christina Siegel-Knowles from the Bank of England on the Bottom Line Payments podcast. Thank you all and, and we'll speak again soon. The Payments Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.